welcome to this special episode of Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In the special episodes, I like to look at certain philosophers or little essays or articles and dedicate a little episode to themselves that is out with the main reading that's going on in the other episodes. So, in this special episode, we will be dealing with the philosophy of another pre-Socratic, Parmenides. First, we'll have a look at Parmenides' background and his biography a little bit to give us some context for understanding exactly how he's thinking in the first place and what influences his thoughts and his philosophy. Then we'll be moving on into his problem with Heraclitus's view and I'll be touching upon a little bit of a recap when we reach that point of Heraclitus's view. But if you'd like a much fuller understanding of Heraclitus, feel free to check out special episode 7 that deals with the pre-Socratics in general, as well as Heraclitus's view there. It's a nice sort of companion piece to this episode. Then after we deal with his problems with Heraclitus's view, we'll be going into what exactly is Parmenides' view of knowledge. And then, what's always nice to do, as we did previously with Heraclitus's view as well, when we have philosophy that is seemingly quite abstract at times or difficult to understand, what's always nice to do is relate it back into our everyday lives and relate it back into nice, simple easy to understand examples and that's how we'll be rounding off as well the discussion is relating back in Parmenides view to our everyday lives so let's start off with a discussion of the background of Parmenides so he's born circa which means roughly around 515 BC. He is a student of Xenophanes, who was born roughly around 570 BC to roughly 475 BC. And this is an important background to Parmenides' thoughts because quite interestingly here for Xenophanes that he rejected the view that things in the world are determined by the acts of the Olympian gods. So we have to put ourselves back into ancient Greece for a second. And so what is exactly the context in which we're dealing with here? is that people worshipped the Olympian gods and of course very famous gods Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, Aphrodite and so forth. 
So Zeus is the god of lightning, Hades is the god of the underworld and the dead, and Poseidon is god of the sea. Just as some examples there. And people built temples to the gods and worshipped the gods and offered gifts to them as well as sacrifices. Why do you do all this in the first place is to make the gods happy. And why would you want to make a god happy is because you have within the culture and society of ancient Greece the idea that things are controlled and determined by the Olympian gods. And so an example of that, of course, is to say if a horrible natural disaster occurred, they're not immediately going to think of a scientific approach to that and an understanding of fault lines and so forth, but you would rather make an offering or a gift to the specific Olympian god in order to try and please him or her so that then that event would not occur again. Because the understanding would be if an event occurred, such as a natural disaster, that was because the god was incredibly displeased for some reason. And so we have to try and always make the gods happy so horrible things won't happen and we can live our lives in a nice happy way. And so one example of that is in just an easy one. If we thought of an example of a tsunami, horrible natural disaster event there, tons of water just washing everything away and so forth. How could we prevent that occurring again is that you would go to the temple of Poseidon. Why would you do that? Because he's the god of the sea. And then you would want to make Poseidon happy, make lots of gifts and perhaps make sacrifices in his name to make sure that that tsunami never happens again. And so that then forms a little bit of the context and background for what makes Xenophanes so much different to the traditional social and cultural background of ancient Greece. Because here we have someone who is arguing against precisely the norm that is accepted by society. Suddenly here Xenophanes is saying no, things are not determined by the Olympian gods. And you can imagine in this given situation, somebody who argues this line of thought that things are not determined by the gods is quite weird and might even be laughable because it's such a part of everyday life, because the gods are worshipped to such an extent that suddenly someone has 
an argument to say, no, actually things are not determined by the gods. So then comes in a nice critical reply that you can have. Okay, Xenophanes, if things are not determined by the gods, then what are they determined by? And Xenophanes would reply back that we shouldn't have an idea of a polytheism, which is the idea of multiple gods, as we have in the Olympian god system, where we have several gods, but rather he says that we should only have the idea of just one supreme god. And so the posh word for that is monotheism. And of course, an example of monotheism is Christianity, where we simply have just an idea of a supreme god and not multiple gods there. And not only would he reply in favor of one supreme god, he would then also say that the world must be solely understood through human inquiry. That is to say, when we go to understand things like natural disasters, or we want to understand how the world works, we must move away from always assuming that is the work and influence of unhappy gods. In fact, what we should do is move towards how we can understand the world. And if we move to that basis, then we can reach a completely different understanding and therefore will know how the world works that is not going to be determined by the gods. And so, going back to the example of natural disasters again, we can see from that exactly how Xenophanes would start to tackle that issue to start to analyze it much more in a scientific way through human inquiry rather than always going towards the divine basis again, starting to understand the basic scientific understanding of the world and how things work. So then that's two key things we can see that Xenophanes is distinct from the culture and society from ancient Greece arguing for monotheism on the one hand and then arguing that the world must be understood through human inquiry reaching a much more scientific understanding. And then Parmendes is also influenced by the Pythagorean movement based upon the mathematical philosophy of Pythagoras and as everybody has done math at school, everybody knows the Pythagorean theorem of a squared plus b squared equals c squared. As it says there on Google, 
In mathematics, the Pythagorean theorem, also known as Pythagoras' theorem, is a fundamental relation in Euclidean geometry among the three sides of a right triangle. It states that the area of the square whose side is the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the areas of the squares on the other two sides. And don't worry, it's not going to suddenly take a complete sidetrack into mathematics here. It's simply just to get our toes a little bit into the influence here of mathematics and the importance in which mathematics is going to play a role within Parmenides' philosophy. And we don't have to use even the Pythagorean theorem here to understand the role of mathematics. We can simply use even just the most simplest understanding of addition in which we can have 2 plus 2 equals 4. In which the idea behind that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is something that's always true in which you can interchange that into any example that you like to apples to cakes therefore will always make up four things and what's so important about that always being true is the fact that regardless of what time period we're in and regardless of what culture or society that we're in, that one idea of 2 plus 2 equals 4 is always true and always remains the same. So that's one of the most beautiful things about mathematics, arguably, is that these truths will always remain the same. And so, what is all this point about Pythagoras and addition is this whole idea of timelessness that is related to truth here. That we have reached a point in mathematics there in which you can suddenly have timeless truths. Now, why are they timeless is because it fits back into the idea of always being true regardless of what time period that we're in. Therefore, the truth is something that is timeless because it's always true. And that is one of the main things that the Pythagorean movement thought that with mathematics we can reach certain fundamental understandings of the world based upon maths that will always lead us to absolute certainty and something that cannot be called into question. And why is that so important? Is because if you can call something into question, it then calls it into doubt as being true. But for maths, you can't do the same, arguably, because 2 plus 2 will always equal 4. 
2 minus 2 will always equal 0. a squared plus b squared equals c squared will always be true. And so from mass is a foundation and a basis, you can start to understand why people might be so influenced with taking it as a foundation and basis to move forward when we're dealing with ideas of truth and putting it not in the mathematical sphere but then suddenly putting it into different spheres like what happens if we start to think about knowledge in this way how would that look like or how would an ethics and model in which we can act look like if we adopted the same idea and principles that we can have a mathematical style understanding where we can always have certainty and always have a concrete foundation and basis for knowledge, ethics and truth wouldn't that sound appealing? And that is a basis, of course, is something that has very much influenced philosophers post the pre-Socratics, of course. It's something that's very much influential in Plato as well. As a favourite of the podcast, he always pops up here and there, in which it said, above the academy door to Plato's school, let no man enter who does not know geometry. Which, in itself, you might find that kind of strange. Why can't you enter a school, especially a philosophical school, if you don't know geometry? And it's all going back to this idea here from mathematics that we reach certain fundamental truths and understandings of the world and it's basically saying in terms of Plato's school you need to have a good basis in maths before you can even come in the door. And so returning back into Parmenides we have then the two really main influences for his philosophy. Being a student of Xenophanes who argues for monotheism and that the world is to be understood through human inquiry and the other is this mathematical approach based upon the philosophy of Pythagoras. So let's move on then into Parmenides' problem with Heraclitus. And let's give a very brief little going back over the philosophy of Heraclitus. In the last special episode I touched upon what makes up the philosophy of Heraclitus. And the fundamental principle to understand the world is fire. And this is to be understood as a metaphor for Heraclitus's view that the world is in a continual state of transformation and change. 
And this fits back into the pre-Socratics as a whole because they all, in their various different ways, argued for different causes and principles in which we should understand the world. And one would argue for the fundamental principle being water, the other would argue for air, another would argue for a combination of hot and cold, and so forth. So everybody's all arguing in the pre-Socratics as to what is the fundamental principles in which we can understand why things work in the world the way that they do. And so we go back into Heraclitus and one of his main arguments was that you could never step in the same river twice. And not to go into too much depth about the quote here, but simply that the river itself is in a continual state of movement and flow. Therefore, if you stepped into the river, it wouldn't be the same river, or at least the same piece of water as before, as well as the fact that we can apply this to our bodies and our idea of the self at the same time is that our bodies are in a continual state of transformation. And an example of that, of course, is cell division. Heraclitus obviously has no idea about cell division at the time, but from that we can see the whole ideas of our cells in continual division all the time within our bodies. It's something that's ongoing. It's something that is in a continual state of transformation and change. Another aspect of that is, of course, our ideas and beliefs. And that's something in which we can get quite fixed about, about having a certain belief in something or having a fixed idea about the way that we think. And what's so great about Heraclitus's philosophy is to think about all the challenges to how we think and the ways in which we think is never going to be the same. And to think about all the little things that can influence us and make us change our mind and precisely that we always think of the end result all the time. And we don't really tend to think about the whole process and the whole pains and potential struggles that we went through in order to change our mind or change belief in the first place. And it's something as simple. It doesn't have to be in a very complex example in which we simply thought one idea in our childhood and then thought differently when we're adults. And it could be something as simple as having a particular favorite movie that we really, really loved as a child and then you go back to watch it as an adult and you can't believe that you loved it so much as a child because now you can see all the flaws in it. So what's the main thing then that we can take away 
from the philosophy of Heraclitus is going again back to that argument for his view of transformation, change in flux and everything in the world, our bodies, even our notion of self and self-identity is always in this state of continual transformation and change. And so let's take this as a nice basis then to move forward into Parmendi's problems that he has with Heraclitus's view that the world is in this state of continual flux, change and transformation. And we've got a nice quote here from Parmendi's. So let's read through it. How can it come to be? For if it came to be, it is not. Not even if it is sometime going to be. Thus, coming to be has been extinguished and perishing cannot be investigated. Nor is it divisible, since it is all alike, and not at all more in any way, which would keep it from holding together. So let's break this quote down. How can it come to be? For if it came to be, it is not. Not even if it is sometime going to be. And so immediately, Parmendi's, you can see here, is thinking of how things exist in the world. And if it's in this continual state of transformation and change, he's therefore, as you can see, starting to problematize this to such an extent, he's thinking of how do things exist in the world if they're always in this state of change and transformation at all times? How can it come to be? For if it came to be, it is not. Not even if it is sometime going to be. And immediately within that, we have the relation into time. It cannot come into being, for if it came into being, it can't exist. And it can't even exist, even if it's going to sometime exist in the future. So here we have a relation into thinking of time in the present and the future. If it is in so much a state of transformation and change, it cannot come into existence. For if it came into existence, it doesn't exist because it's already changed. And you can see from that how he's starting to try to want to understand how you can analyze things. If I have a specific object in front of me, and we take Heraclitus's view, the object that I'm viewing and analyzing would immediately change. And if we 
then tried to say, okay, if it's immediately changed in front of me, then you can say, well, maybe I can try and analyze its future state. But even if he's saying here, you try to say it'll eventually be analyzable in the future, we can study this at some point in the future, the answer is still going to be no, because of that idea of change is always in continual movement, always going on, always happening at all times. So another way of putting this line would be, I can't analyze it in the present because it's changed, nor can I analyze it in the future because it's also going to have changed again. And we're immediately starting to think about how can I start to analyze things? How can I study things within Heraclitus' view? Let's move on to the next line. Thus coming to be has been extinguished and perishing cannot be investigated. And again, we can build upon what he said. Since we cannot study it at all in the present because it is changed, or in the future because it's changed again, that means that its whole aspect of coming into existence has been extinguished, has been removed, because you can't suddenly analyze it as having come into existence at some given point in time. Of course, a good example of that would be of how things come into existence. You can say, well, look at how babies are made. That is something that comes into existence that you can study and analyze exactly how cell division works and how the fetus is formed and so on. You can analyze how a baby comes into existence. But here we're saying, no, if you use Heraclitus's view, you can analyze things in such a way because it's always in that continual flux, continual change. It's such an extreme that there is no coming into existence for things, nor can things that perish be investigated. So you can analyze how things wither or die. You can analyze that either. So you again can see how Parmendes is thinking of time here, but also in relation to a scientific understanding of the world and through life cycles. How can I analyze things that come into existence, like human beings, like animals, like plant life, and at the same time, how can I understand the whole life cycle process of these things, and then study what happens over that course of a life cycle, and then what happens when things die. I can, because at every single instance, it would be a different object. It would be a different thing. 
at all given times because it's always in that state of transformation and change. So therefore we're starting to build upon this through the whole idea that we have a problem in relation to time. We have a problem in relation to a scientific understanding. Let's keep on building upon this then. Nor is it divisible since it is all alike and not at all more in any way which would keep it from holding together. And so here we come into again the problem of how do things exist. Since it is in such an idea of transformation and change, he says it cannot be divisible, which is just a posh way of saying that you couldn't see it at all in front of your eyes because the object would always be in that state of transformation and change. Therefore, he's saying the whole idea is something that has to be analyzable that we can see, that we can touch, and it's completely metaphysical, therefore, as an idea. Why is that the case? Because it's so chaotic, as he says. There's nothing that holds it together. It would simply always fall apart. Every time you would try to touch it you couldn't it would always change it would always be in that state of flux you couldn't touch it you couldn't see it it would be like sand continually going through your fingers at all given points and of course going back to a nice simple idea of metaphysics as well just simply something that we couldn't touch or see and one idea of course is God is a metaphysical thing as well as the idea of the soul is a metaphysical thing but here we have the idea of this transformation and change is something that's metaphysical and therefore we can't arrive at a scientific understanding of it because it's so chaotic. And then you can see how building upon the scientific understanding, we need therefore to have things that will hold things together. That there has to be some sort of structure there that we can hold things together and analyze because then we can start to understand how things work and why things are the way that they are in the world. And you can see exactly how Parmenides is starting to think. We need to reach an idea in relation to time that we can analyze things in a scientific way that they'll have a clear past, present, future, we can have an understanding of life cycles. We can have an understanding of the world. It'll all be done through human inquiry. And there'll be certain fundamental principles within this that we can apply to what we're analyzing and understanding. And then that builds upon 
Another quote that we can look at for our Parmendes and building upon his own view of how then can we reach a correct understanding of things if things are not going to be based upon this idea of flux and change. We start to dip our toes into what he's going to start to say here. So let's work our way through another quote from Parmendes. A thing is unchanging in the limits of great bonds. It is without starting or ceasing, remaining the same, and so remains there fixed. For this reason it is right, for what is to be not incomplete. For it is not lacking, otherwise what is would be in want of everything. So let's break this down and work our way through it again. A thing is unchanging in the limits of great bonds. It is without starting or ceasing, remaining the same. So we can see here what we're going to be starting to problematize is again this idea of time. A thing is unchanging without starting or ceasing. Now, you immediately go into a understanding of what do things in the world do? Is that they start and stop? Is that everything has that life cycle? Things are born and they die things grow and they wither. But here we have quite an opposite view. A thing is unchanging, remaining the same. So therefore, our idea cannot be based upon here the idea that things will have the idea of starting and stopping all the time. Why is that? Because it's in that continual state of motion, change and flux. Here you can see that Parmendes thinks of the idea of transformation and change as so harmful, so counterproductive to knowledge, that in fact we need to reach an understanding of things that remain the same, that don't continually change and continually transform. We have the opposite view starting to emerge then. What are the qualities about objects that always remain the same despite these changes that might happen? That's another way of phrasing this line. What are the qualities that remain the same despite these changes? Let's move on to the next part then. And so remains there fixed. For this reason it is right. For what is to be not incomplete. So it remains there fixed with exactly the same properties and qualities because 
it would be incomplete as an idea when you have the idea of continual change and transformation again. If it's always going to be something that's different, then our idea itself remains always in that state of being incomplete. Always having a blank, basically, in our knowledge. But if we take the opposite view and try to start to understand the same qualities here, then suddenly our ideas are more complete because they don't have a blank because it's starting to understand those fundamental principles about what makes up an object or a thing in the world. And therefore that then fits into the last line, for it is not lacking, otherwise what is would be in want of everything. And so therefore it's a complete idea as well as it doesn't lack any properties, because that's exactly what we would have if we tried to move into even a light form of Heraclitus that's not even in quite the extreme that Parmendes thinks. If we simply just took the view that things change in the world, it's always in that state of having that blank, an incomplete knowledge. And a good example to illustrate this, of course, is the problem of missing colors in which you can say that if you didn't have an experience of certain colors is a good empirical problem here one that's a scientific problem if you didn't have the experience of certain colors of blue for example that would mean that your knowledge of that certain kind of blue would always remain incomplete. You would never have a complete idea of what blue is. And we can apply that same problem to various different things in the world. If we didn't have specific experiences of trying certain types of food, for example, that would mean that our experience of various different foods would be always incomplete. There's always that lack in our knowledge. There's always a blank to be filled. And even if we tried to therefore go out and experience absolutely everything that we could possibly do, go and eat as much different types of food from as different cultures as physically possible, it would still always remain an incomplete because we can't experience every single culture and go around every single country. And even if we did have such a luxury as that, then it would still remain incomplete because there's certain cultures and societies that remain hidden to us. Like I'm thinking of here, the certain villages and so forth that are isolated still within the world. But here we can see from Parmendi's understanding then, the influence of mathematics here is absolutely crucial and everybody can see how it's influencing his thought at the same time. Here we can start to not think of the world as this changing thing, but rather based upon certain things that always remain the same. 
certain fundamental truths and principles that are always true. And if it remains always true, that means that our knowledge itself will always be complete. Despite the changes that are happen in the world, that means that the knowledge itself would not lack. And therefore, we wouldn't always try to be filling that blank. And so, you can see from all this, what exactly is the main thing that Parmenides and his influence of mathematics there arguing for is again reflecting upon those timeless qualities of an object and timeless things in the world. If we reflect upon what remains the same about a certain object over time, what is always the same despite all these changes then we'll arrive at the fundamental truths of the world. And so let's take these views that Parmenides has and let's apply his problem that he has with Heraclitus to an analysis of bees. So if we just think of bees for an example, then we can say using the Heraclitian technique, it would be difficult to analyze bees. Why is that the case? Is because we would be always completely stuck on analyzing all the little differences between things at all times. Like, for example, the fact they're all different sizes and colors of yellow and black. We'd be so much caught up on analyzing all these little things about bees that you would never get into the whole other properties about how they make honey and so forth because you would always just be analyzing those little novel differences between things. But on the other hand, using that Parmendian approach, using Parmendi's approach, we must focus not on the environmental or experiential qualities, things that we can experience, but rather on its structure. And so that's a key thing again, is that we must not focus upon the environmental because that's something that changes again all the time, or our experiences because that's something that leads towards a lack of knowledge, but rather its structure. And if we apply the structure to bees, then we can analyze the life of a bee and enables us to understand the production of honey and its function in a hive. Easy peasy. And so suddenly then we arrive at an understanding of exactly how bees work, how they produce honey, and we're not stuck upon all those little novel differences about the different various shapes and sizes that they are, all the different little novel colors of yellow and black and so forth, we can move towards a much more concrete understanding of bees, the hive, and the production of honey. And again, we can 
use Parmendi's approach to also viewing our own lives and our own biographies in a way. And of course, various different people throughout history have, have written biographies and so forth, or other people have written biographies on famous people and so on. We have one for Steve Jobs, we have one for John Stewart, we have Hillary Clinton's biography, we have David Bowie's biography, and so forth, all dealing with various different people. And so, one of the questions that we can pose to our own lives from Parmendi's view would be, what would be more important, the little novelties or the events, the big events within our lives? And from that, you can see the counter-argument that can be made to Heraclitus's view that when you're dealing with someone like the life of David Bowie, you're not so much caring about the fact that he burnt the toast a specific day, that he didn't catch the bus a day, or all the little things that could happen within his life but rather all the grand things and important things that he did within his life has that fundamental impact and shape upon who he becomes as an individual. The same could be said, of course, for Steve Jobs. Is it something that's important about Steve Jobs that he has a certain dietary preference or that he did all little different things or isn't he rather defined by his technological innovations and so forth within Apple? Isn't that more important rather than all these little things? And from all this you can see exactly what Parmendi's point is. It's the grand events in our lives that ultimately shape us as individuals. Of course, there's an argument to be made that initially at a given point within our lives, we don't realize, in fact, that it was a big thing that happened. But upon reflection, you could always say and realize that exactly how important that was. And of course, you could just think about specific friendships that you've had in the past and not realizing precisely how much of an impact upon that person's had within your life, for example, as an instance there, and how much they influenced you and shaped precisely something big that happened within your life later. And it's that whole point that everything feeds into these big things within our lives. And let's use as a last example here, John Lennon is an individual. You can say from the Heraclitus view, all the little things would be important that he did within his life. But fundamentally, from the... Parmendi's view, you could say, well, okay, he's 
a horrible father to his son Julian Lennon. That's a fair point that you can make. But do people erect statues and praise John Lennon based upon that as an idea? No. Why? Is because John Lennon stands for one fundamental idea and that is for peace and love and so you have various different statues of whatever individual it is like John Lennon and they're going to represent one big idea and that's fundamentally what we can say about biographies and lives and how they're shaped is that yes there's of course all these different little things that can happen every life is different but fundamentally when you break it down and really look at someone's life from Parmendi's view you can say well that person's life represents this specific idea that this specific idea in this case of John Lennon and the ideas of peace that is something that is consistent throughout his whole life or at least the majority of his life and so moving on from biographies and bees then into our ideas of justice because we can then apply Parmendi's view also to the notions of a justice system and ethics at the same time. And I've got another great quote here to discuss. For this reason, neither coming to be nor perishing did justice allow, loosening her shackles, but she, justice, holds it fast. And let's break down this quote then. Is that we can see again the importance of timelessness coming out. And this whole idea of oneness as well. Through the whole idea of sameness. There's simply just one clear idea that we have of things. And not a model. Not a mixture just one clear idea the idea of justice is something that holds fast something that remains the same again something that doesn't change is not chaotic but rather here the idea of justice itself will hold things together stop there being a chaotic system stop there being an unjust system at the same time and so we can get into this more when we deal with the question do we all have the same ideas of morality and immediately the answer to that is no why do we all differ on ideas of morality? That is questions of what is a good action and what is a bad action is through, of course, societal and cultural differences that 
as countries will differ between each other upon what they think is a good action and what they deem fit as a punishment for a bad action that someone has committed. And of course there'll be several different degrees of punishment and so on. But the fundamental thing is no one quite fundamentally agrees at least at surface value that we can all arrive at one clear idea of justice because that is reflected within the various different ideas of how justice systems vary country by country in the world. However, you can say from Parmendi's view that there is social and cultural differences, that countries have different systems of punishment and justice and so forth, that we can all reach certain fundamental principles and certain fundamental points in which we can always agree upon regardless of what time period we're in, regardless of what country we're in, because there are certain fundamental things he would say that will always remain true. And one of these things of course is an easy example that murder is an absolutely horrible action that must be punished. And from that very simple idea we can see arguably that throughout time various different societies and cultures and so forth have all implemented the same basic idea of punishment for murderers. The way in which the punishment will be carried out of course will differ country by country but the main idea itself that murder is wrong and must be punished is something that always remains the same. And so from this you can have an ethics emerge in which you can base certain ideas and fundamental principles upon that will always remain the same, at least from Parmendi's viewpoint. And we have then an immense level of the amount of benefits of thinking about the same qualities and reflecting upon the fundamental principles of things from Parmendi's view. Because you can say it is by thinking of similarity what makes a thing the same throughout time, what's its fundamental properties, that we can all universally reflect upon the same ideas. This then enables an educational system to be created where we can all reflect upon the correct way to think, such as the example of bees and looking at the structure of bees and the hive and the production of honey. This also enables a moral system to be created where we can all reflect upon the correct way to act. Then 
we not only have the benefits of all reflect upon the same ideas and also the whole benefits about correct way to think and act, but then we can also relate to other people in our own country and in different societies and cultures at the same time because of having things to talk about and share, sharing the same likes, despite all those different societal and cultural differences that we can have, that there's certain things that we can all get along and have a good discussion about. And a nice quote that comes to mind, or at least a scene, is from Mean Girls, in which Lindsay Lohan's character says, yeah, I like math because it's the same in every country. And the reply goes, that's beautiful. This girl is deep. And it's the same thing there for Parmendes. And you can see the whole point again for maths coming through that it's the same for every country that regardless of societal and cultural differences, that there's certain things we can all have a conversation about, talk about, and share as certain fundamental things upon deep topics and so forth. So that about wraps up this episode. So we can say that for Paramendes, then, we must reflect upon timeless qualities of things in the world in doing so, we are able to maintain a universal idea that can be reflected upon by everyone. And then this enables an education and moral system to be implemented where we are all able to know the correct way to think and act. Many thanks for listening to the episode. Feel free to check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. Feel free to drop me an email at my address dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com. Feel free to tip me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash dissectingphilosophy. And lastly, I can be found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time.